Let's read together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word before we get into it. Let's pray together. Our Father, that psalm that we just read contains such a beautiful and stirring description of the way that you speak to us. Through creation, the skies above, the earth beneath, day to day and night to night, they pour forth knowledge about your glory. And yet you have given us the Bible, your word, that is to us more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. It teaches us what is right, shows us where we are wrong. It tells us how to make what is wrong right and keep it so. And our prayer is that the meditation of our heart, the things that we think about nobody knows and the things that we do deliberately and the things that we say all would be pleasing in your sight. And so, my Father, as I preach, I pray that what I say would be your word and that it would be received with hearts in hearts of faith because it is you speaking through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd ask that you turn your Bible in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we are in the book of the Psalms, but I ask that you turn to 2 Timothy, which is in the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 996. And our text is 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through chapter 4 and verse 2. And I'll explain just a moment why I had us read Psalm 19 as a scripture reading, as a preface, or to prepare our minds for this text here in the New Testament. Because... Uh, we are beginning today what will be a six-week series on what we're calling Dynamics of Life at Trinity Baptist Church. 
And uh, we're using the word dynamic uh, in this sense, a force or property that's at work in an organism or organization that stimulates growth and change. So dynamics of life, what is it in the context of our church or any local church that stimulates growth and change? You can think about this in the context of, of really anything that is a growing, living organism like a tree, for example. What would you say would be the dynamics of life in a tree. Well, you can talk about the process of photosynthesis. You could talk about the amount of sunlight that it gets. You could talk about the other trees that are around it, the, the soil, the amount of water that it gets. All those are dynamics of life in that tree. What would you say are the dynamics of life in a local church, a flourishing, functioning church? Well, you could probably make a long list of the kinds of things that would contribute to a, a flourishing, healthy church, but for the sake of focus, we're going to boil it down to just six. And beginning this Sunday and uh, the next six Sundays, we're going to be looking at these six dynamics of life. You could call them core values. We're calling them dynamics of life at Trinity Baptist Church. And we're beginning with the Word of God. The second will be the gospel. That is the central message of the Word of God. And then the third is spiritual renewal. The fourth is dependent prayer. The fifth is loving community, a community of people loving one another, and the fifth is, the sixth is united mission. And if you didn't get all that, don't worry, you will over the course of these six weeks. And for those of you who are interested, I have those printed out on a sheet of paper in the foyer, and you could grab one of those on the, the Welcome Center, and you could grab one of those on your way out. So we'll be looking at these six dynamics of life here at Trinity Baptist Church. And the first one we're talking about is the Word of God. And the reason why I had us read Psalm 19 is because Psalm 19 talks about the two books, if you will, by which God communicates to us. There is the book of the world, that is this earth and, and the galaxies and everything in it, and there's the book of the Word, the book of the world and the book of the Word, and they both are ways in which God reveals Himself to us. But they're, they're different in that the book of the world is open to some interpretation. It's not black and white. It's not laid out for us like the book of the Word is. You could think of it this way, that the book of the world as God's self-revelation, uh, it could be compared to like a, a painting that an artist has done, and by studying the painting, you can learn something about that artist. But it's possible that someone might have come along and scribbled on that painting or marred it somehow. So what, what you learn about the artist is open to some interpretation. But the book of the Word, the Bible, would be like a, a plaque containing information next to that painting, giving, the, giving you the name of the author, telling you uh, the artist, telling you what the artist intended by that painting. So the Word of God, the Bible, tells us about God in a clear way. And what we want to focus on is that the fact that this is, the Bible, is God's self-revelation. And that's why I took you to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, because while the Bible as a whole is humming and whirring with this theme of God's revealing Himself through the Word, we, are, we find some places in which this is concentrated in a powerful way. Now, suppose I told you that right after the service... Uh, at the Welcome Center, there was a stack of free coupon or coupons for a free FDA-approved health program 
that while it would require a little bit of work on your end, would be guaranteed success. And it would begin to transform your body. Uh, it would begin to remove unwanted blemishes, to reverse the effects of aging, uh, to change uh, saggy limbs into firm, well-muscled, to increase your muscle mass and your bone density. Um, you would finally be able to do the things you would want to do. You, you can start on the basketball team. You'd be, you'd be able to dunk a basketball. Uh, you could uh, sled, go sledding with your grandchildren or go skiing. Your, your family's been telling you ought not to do those events for some time, but now you'd finally be able to do those kinds of things. Uh, it, would, it would begin making you look uh, stronger, more beautiful. Your hair would have more body to it. And you'd finally be able to check your side mirror when you change lanes without injuring your neck. All kinds of things you'd be able to do because of this guaranteed program. And if I told you that there was that uh, a coupons for this free, proven, successful uh, program, I have no doubt that there'd be a long line of people waiting to apply for that. Now, you might know where I'm going with this. There is such a program, though not for your body, but for your, whole, your person, your soul. And that is the Word of God. Because Paul writes here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's program for making us the sort of people that God intends for us to be. And what is true of individuals is also true for us as a church, and that is that if, if we are to be healthy at all, the Bible... If we're to be a healthy church, the Bible must be our life and our authority. And that is a core value, an essential dynamic of life at any flourishing local church and something that we want to be foundational, indeed must be foundational at Trinity Baptist Church, and that is that the Bible, God's Word, is our life and our authority. Now, I want to unfold for you in four parts in just a moment what this passage teaches us about the Bible. But before I do, I want to answer what might be a couple objections about this entire topic, and that is making the Bible our life and our authority. Two, obje two objections. Some people might say that it is dangerous and intellectually ruinous to claim a book as one's authority. Some people say it is dangerous and it is ruinous intellectually to claim a book as one's authority. People might say someone who takes a book as their authority ends up becoming extreme, fundamentalist in the pejorative sense of that term. And in recent years, I would say within the past 20, 25 years, there has been parallels drawn between Christians who take the Bible as their authority and Muslims who take the Koran as their authority, lumping all into the same category as extremist or using the pejorative term of fundamentalist. Now, there's a lot of things we can say about that. One is that there is a big difference, and you can study this out for yourself, between the way Muslims approach the Koran and the way that Christians approach the Word of God, the Bible. 
But beyond that, the real issue comes down to this. Where does one derive their authority? Anybody who says, well, you're getting your authority from a book, can, can, you can ask them a question, where do you get your authority? Where is, where is your source of authority? People who think that the Bible is a dead end to intellectual pursuit need only to read their history books and realize that the teaching of the Bible is what gave rise to much of what we consider today as modern science. In fact, and I'm, I'm going to give a, just a lengthy example of this, and again, I'm just answering the first of two objections before we get into this passage. In fact, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a proven thing historically that the rise of literacy, the fact that people can read, is traced to a belief that the Bible is God's word. Uh, if you study the growth of literacy in the 1500s and 1900s, you'll notice that literacy rates are higher in Protestant countries. And as late as, 19, as the 1900, uh, um, higher, the higher the percentage of Protestants, the higher the rate of literacy. Now, this has been documented in a book uh, has a strange title. It's called The Weirdest People in the World. You can, you can look it up. It's a very interesting book. But anyway, this has been documented in that book that... Uh, in Britain, for example, in the year 1900, in Britain, Sweden, and the Netherlands, the literacy rate was nearly 100% in 1900. But in Catholic countries, such as Spain uh, and Italy, the literacy was 50%. And in fact, the book says, if you can, you can look at, uh, you could predict the level, level of literacy by seeing how many Protestants were in that country. Why is that the case? Well, the author says this, the very notion that every individual should read and interpret ancient sacred texts for himself or herself in, the, in pre-modern societies, that very notion would have been considered outrageous and dangerous. So there was a time when, when the fact that people should be able to read a, a text for themselves was outrageous and dangerous. But what did the Protestant Reformation do? It recovered this idea that anyone can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that relationship is talked about in the Bible. Therefore, everybody should learn how to read. That's why literacy rates grew so incredibly after the Reformation. And that's just one answer to that objection, that it's dangerous and intellectually ruinous to claim the Bible as authority. Another objection is this. Some people might say, you're talking about the Bible. Well, there's really no such thing as the Bible. Uh, a couple years ago, I walked into the uh, the library, our city's library, and I saw in the recent release sections a book, that's, a book that said the history of the Bible. So, of course, as a pastor, I have to pick up, pick up a book like that, right? You know, you read a, the recent releases, new, new books, uh, and I picked it up, and I, began, I took it home, and I began to read it. I checked it out first, don't worry. Um, I began to read it. And, and one of the central claims of that book was that there really is no such thing as a Bible, as the Bible, because people don't agree on what the Bible is. That was his his argument. He said even to give a history of the Bible is difficult because he says there's really no such thing as a Bible. But again, that's another, that's another objection that could easily be answered historically. It is true that among uh, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants, there is a different, there's disagreement about the number of books that belong in the canon. But if you go back to the early centuries of, of the Christian church, you'll find that very early on, even within the first century, Peter, for example, was recognizing the writings of the Apostle Paul as on par with the Old Testament Scripture. About the third and fourth century, there was lists that contained the exact lists of Bibles that we have, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. 
And so I just want to bring those up to let you know those are objections I'm aware of, but we can set them aside for now and say there is such a thing as the Bible, and taking the, Bibles as one, one's, taking the Bible as one's authority is not a, a dead end intellectually, nor is it dangerous. So, what does the Bible say about the Bible? That's what we want to get into this morning. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter and one that he addressed to his protege, Timothy, he calls his beloved child in the faith. And he speaks of his impending death in verse 6 of chapter 4 when he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul is saying, my ministry is almost over. And this is his final charge to Timothy. Now, what do you think will be his final charge, his, his lasting commandment? What is he going to leave with Tim and, Timothy and say, if, if, if you do one thing, make it all about this. His central lasting charge is found in chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. He says, preach the word. Preach the Bible. Now, th- this is incredibly significant that Paul would make this his final charge. This is incredibly significant not only to me as a preacher, but also to us as members of a church. This is, what we are, this is the task we are given to do, to preach, to proclaim the word. So in this section from verses, for verse 14 of chapter 3 to verse 2 of chapter 4, we are going to see four truths about the Bible that we must know in order for us to be aware of and move forward in a church who makes it as our dynamic, a core value, the Word of God. We're going to see, first of all, what the Bible is, second, what the Bible does, third, how the Bible does it, and fourth, what that means for us. First of all, what the Bible is, what it does, how it does it, and what that means for us. So first of all, let's look at what the Bible is, what the Bible is. We see what the Bible is in three terms that Paul uses in this section. So first of all, if you look at verse 15, you see that Paul uses the term, the sacred writings. And then in verse 16, he refers to these as scripture. And in chapter 4 and verse 2, he refers to this as the word. So three terms, all referring to the same thing, sacred writings, Scripture and the Word, and all three help fill out our understanding of what this is. First of all, let's look at this term, sacred writings. Now, the word sacred writings refers to the fact that this word is uh, documents compiled, uh, written by human beings. So people, humans wrote the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 21 says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When you read the Bible, as many of you are right now, trying to read the Bible in one year or at least uh, read the New Testament twice or read it in six months, uh, what you are noticing is that the different writers have various styles of writing. There is a distinctive human element in the Bible. Moses He writes the first five books of the Bible referred to as the Pentateuch. He had the vast learning uh, at at his disposal, having grown up in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. 
Isaiah, the prophet, speaks with, with thunderous eloquence. David, who wrote many of the Psalms, dips his pen into his heart and writes uh, heart-moving poetry. The, the, many of the prophets, they range from highly educated to less educated. Each of the four Gospels vary a great deal in their approach to recording the biographical details of the life. So there is this, there is this human element that Paul refers to in the sacred writings. He refers to the Bible as the sacred writings. Now, it is, and along these lines, I will say that, that it, is, it is misleading, therefore, to say God wrote the Bible because it evokes in our minds and this a picture of God taking pen to paper and writing it down. The fact is, what the Bible teaches us about the Bible is that God, He worked through human authors to put what became His very words into writing. Now, the, the first term, sacred writings, emphasizes the human element of this book, but the second term in verse 16, all Scripture emphasizes the divine component of the Bible. All Scripture, Paul uses a singular word, Scripture, meaning this, these many writings, many though they be, are all one. And he uses this term, that we is translated in the ESV, breathed out by God, which is in the original Greek, one word, and I'm going to pronounce it for you because it'll become important later. It sounds like this, theopneustos. You, you hear the word for, theo, for God, theos, in the first part, and the word for spirit, neustos, P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S, in the second part. Now, that simply means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. Now, to help illustrate this, I want everyone to participate in a, a little uh, activity. Can you do that? Just to, 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 you will remember this better if you actually do this. If you put your hand up to your mouth, put your hand up to your mouth. I want to see everybody doing this. Everybody has to participate. And just for a moment, say your name. Say your name out loud. I'll do it. Jonathan. Okay? I don't think I got 100% participation in that. All right, let's try that one more time. Let's put our hand up to your mouth and say your name. Okay. That was 100%. Everybody gets an A-plus on this. Now, if you were alert, you might have noticed that you can feel a puff of breath come out of your mouth when you said your name. Now, the puff of breath means the word you spoke was your word. You didn't, when you said your name, assuming that you did participate, you didn't, you didn't feel, I hope not, at least the puffs of breath of other people on your hand. It was your word coming out. See, what, what Paul is saying very, very clearly, very um, strongly here is that the Scripture is God's puff of breath. It is Him speaking. The whole thing is God's breath. Now, it's, it's very significant that the word for breath, spirit, and wind are all the same word in both Greek and Hebrew. There's this, and there's even uh, etymological connections between the word ghost and gust in, in English. You have the old, the, the King James refers to the Holy Ghost. It is a wind, it is a spirit, it is a breath. All scripture is the breath of God. And, and the point is this, even though these writings were composed by different people, across a vast span of time, uh, three different continents, three different languages, yet all together is one scripture, the breath of God. That's where we get the, the doctrine of inspiration. 
That is, the, the word to spirit, to, to breathe, to, to spirit something means to speak it, to breathe it out. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, that is meaning it is breathed out from God. So, the sacred writings highlights the, the, the human element of the Bible. The term Scripture, singular, breathed out by God, highlights the divine element of the Bible. And finally, this term word denotes the fact that these writings taken together as one unified scripture breathed out by God contains one message, the word of God. So that's why Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 2 to Timothy, preach the word implying this. Despite its diversity and given its divine unity, the Bible has a single message. It is a message that must be proclaimed. It is a message that can be heard. It can be ignored. It can be rejected. It can be argued. It can be defended. But it is a message that must be proclaimed. And that's why Paul makes this his final plea to Timothy, his protege, preach the word, preach that central message. What is the central message of the Bible? Well, Paul has said it in chapter 3 and verse 15. He refers to the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation What happens when you believe these sacred writings? Faith in Christ Jesus. The theme at the very center running throughout this book, the thing that unifies it all, that brings together all its disparate parts is this, Jesus Christ, the anointed king, the savior has come. He's brought God to us. He has declared the kingdom of God has come, so repent. Jesus Christ is the focus of this Bible, of this book. We know this for many reasons. One, we can read it from beginning to end. But not only that, but Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 39, he said, the scriptures bear witness about me. Jesus said, this, these, this book is all about me. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus made this claim about himself about the scriptures, that it was all about him. Jesus expounded to his disciples in all the scriptures the things about himself. Acts chapter 28 verse 23 says, this is at the conclusion of the book of Acts, that Paul, when he was under house arrest in the city of Rome, he expounded them from the scriptures about Jesus. This is what the Bible is. It is God's breath, God's speaking, this unified message about Jesus. Now, that's what it is. Imagine with me, if we had such a book as we do, what might it accomplish in our lives? And that takes us to, secondly, what the Bible does. What the Bible does. Paul says it very clearly in verse 15, that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and then explains in verse 16 that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, four actions are attributed to the Bible, the Word of God. First of all, teaching, that is explaining what is right, what is true, for reproof, that is exposing in us what is false or untrue. And then for correction, that is telling us how to change in us what is 
untrue and false to be right and then training in righteousness to keep that right. This is what the Word of God does. The Bible tells us that we, as human beings, and this entire universe was created by a good God who wants us to dwell in His presence for our pleasure and His praise. The Bible tells us that this is what God originally did when He put human beings in the beautiful Garden of Eden and told them to work it and to keep it and to live there as His vice regents, as, as it were, kings and queens to submit themselves to His authority. The Bible tells us that instead of doing that, human beings decentered themselves away from God, believing a lie instead of believing the truth about God, and thereby plunged themselves and their descendants into misery and ultimately separation from God. And yet God resolved to keep His initial promise with human beings, and He worked out a plan whereby ultimately He would send His own Son, God Himself would come, to bear our sins, to bear the punishment they deserve upon the cross so that we could be free from our sin if we trust in Him and live with Him forever. That's, that's what the Bible does. It tells us what's wrong with us. It gives us the solution to what's wrong with us, and it teaches us how to embrace that solution through faith in Jesus Christ. There was a little song that I would sing when I was a kid. My dad would, we were, for a time we were homeschooled, and my dad would teach me my Bible class. And he would sing this song with me, and it went like this. I won't sing it for you, I'll just quote it to you. Holy Bible, book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. Mine to tell me whence I came, mine to teach me what I am. Mine to chide me when I rove, mine to show a Savior's love. Mine thou art to guide and guard, mine to punish or reward. Mine to comfort in distress, suffering in this wilderness. Mine to show by living faith, man can triumph over death. Mine to tell of joys to come and the rebel sinner's doom. O thou holy book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. That's what the Bible does. It teaches us all about, it gives us answers that deepest philosophy could not give us. It gives us answers science, no matter how deep it probes into the mysteries of the universe, could not give us. It tells us how human beings can recon be reconciled to a holy God. That's why it is so, such a wonderful thing to say, precious treasure, thou art mine. Now, that's what the Bible is, what the Bible does. And the third question is, how does the Bible do this? How does the Bible do this? Does it happen by magic? Can you put the Bible under your pillow uh, when you go to sleep at night and hope that uh, you can absorb what it's doing, like some of you try with your textbooks for school? Uh, is the Bible a magic charm? I, I, I have seen uh, advertisements for a, uh, a, a, the Bible that has shrunk, been shrunk down onto this little tiny bit of something, I don't know, but the entire Bible supposedly in microscopic form, something that one can wear uh, as a piece of jewelry, uh, as a way to somehow uh, absorb uh, be, b the Bible by simply wearing it as, as li like a good luck charm. Is this how the Bible works? Woe to us if we treat it that way. How does the Bible transform us? How does it work in us? Well, there is a human side and a divine side. We see in verse 14 that the Bible is something <clears throat> we must learn. Paul refers to Timothy 
as a child, having learned uh, these things from the scripture. He says, how from the, <clears throat> he says uh, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. <clears throat> but we must not only know, we must know, not only know what the Bible says, but we must believe it. In other words, we have to understand what the Bible is saying and we have to believe that what it is saying is true. That's why Paul says in verse 15 that it is able to make you wise for salvation not by putting it under your pillow or not by wearing it as a good luck charm, as a, as a piece of jewelry, but through faith in Christ Jesus by believing its central message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, it is true that many people, I, I actually, I see, I think increasingly so, there seems to be a resurgence in appreciation for the Bible. Uh, there are people that have, are, are discovering that the Bible is an incredibly wise book. There's a difference between gleaning wisdom from Scripture as an ancient document and believing that what Scripture at its very center reveals, and that is, a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ who rescues us from our sins so that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. That's the central message of the Bible that must be believed. It is through faith in Jesus. But how does it do that? How, how does the Bible work about such a change in a person's life? Th think about what a dramatic thing, what an amazing thing it is for someone to come to a point where they realize that every, all their striving, all their efforts, all their good works, all their moral aspirations count for nothing. And they must be received the, the righteousness, the, 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 the perfect life of one who, who lived and died and, and rose again. What kind of change must that take in a person's life? This is not merely a human change. This can come about only as a result of God's Spirit working within a person's heart. That's why I pointed out to you several moments ago about the importance of God breathed, God's Spirit working through His Word. There is a close connection between Word and Spirit. God's Word goes out. When God's Word goes out, His Spirit goes forth changing, convicting, bringing dead, spiritually dead people to life, causing us to see for the first time sometimes the fact that we are sinners lost in our misery. This is the work of God's Spirit without which none of this would matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God to transform us so that we can do the will of God. The fourth question, uh, the fourth item that we're talking about with this text is then, what does this require of us? We saw what the Bible is, what it does, how it does it. And finally, what does this mean for us? First, verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. You notice what a solemn charge this is to any preacher, any pastor. 
It is so solemn that Paul prefaces it with this charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. It is as if Paul envisions a day in which every preacher will stand in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and be called to account for whether or not they preached the word. This is a solemn, weighty charge. And it is this charge and, and charges like it throughout the Bible that drives the pulpit ministry here at this church. That what, what we do when we open the Bible is try to explain its meaning and bring the meaning of the Scripture to bear upon our lives. That's what it means to preach the Word. It means to unfold the scriptural text or theme to an audience in such a way that they know that it is God speaking to them, calling them to faith and repentance. That's what it means to preach the Word. Apart from the Word of God, we don't have anything to preach. And that is why we make this dynamic, the Word of God, the first one in the list that we're dealing with. Because if we begin diluting this message or if we are distracted from making the Word of God the central thing that we do, or if we refuse to let ourselves be shaped by the Word of God, then, then eventually we forfeit our privilege of being called a church at all. Because the church is founded upon the Word of God. Apart from the Word of God, the church doesn't have a message of hope to proclaim. We must preach it. Second, we must learn it. I referred to this earlier, but... Notice how in verse 14 and 15, Paul talks about Timothy's childhood, and he, he refers to the fact that it was a great advantage to Timothy that as a child, he knew these things. Now, many of you didn't grow up learning the Bible, and you wish you had. And many of you who grew up learning the Bible are glad you did. There's something about the mind of a young person that is like wet cement. And things that are impressed into it last for a long time. Some of you grew up learning the Bible and years later you, you walked away from observing the Bible, but phrases and words would come back to you. There is a tremendous advantage to someone who knows from their youth the Word of God. And so there is a tremendous responsibility placed upon Christian parents to teach their children the Bible. If the Bible is to be our life and authority, families, are you reading it together? Parents, are you teaching your children the Word of God? Are you reading the Bible to them? Are you encouraging them to have their times in which they're reading the Bible? This ought to be happening. Those of you who will be parents, will you resolve to teach your, your children the Bible? How, how do you do so? Begin by simply reading it to them from an early age. This, these scriptures that are able to make them wise for salvation. We must preach the word. We must learn the word. This in, 
implies obviously teaching it to our children, but it involves learning it for ourselves, reading it diligently, reading the whole thing. You know, it's easy to get a one-sided, distorted view of God simply because we're not reading the whole Bible. Paul said this to the elders from Ephesus. He said, I did not declare, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's one reason why in, in our course of, of preaching through series, I do my best insofar as I'm able to give a well-balanced diet of the Word of God. I try to alternate between Old Testament and New Testament. This, after this series, uh, this six-week series on the dynamics of life here at church, I, I intend to go through the New Testament book of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For a time, we've been looking at some Old Testament, uh, before that, we've been looking at some Old Testament characters. We try to give a balance so that we are exposing ourselves to various genres, styles of writing within the, in the Bible, so that we can be, on an on a ongoing basis, giving the whole counsel of God. We need to be studying our Bibles, learning the Bibles, te- teaching our Bibles to our young people. Third, we must live the Word. Notice that the Word was commended to Timothy at an early age, as Paul says in verse 14, knowing from whom you learned it. The, uh, in a, elsewhere, Paul refers to uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother as ones who had given him a godly example. And Paul himself, in this context, is setting himself up as an example that Timothy followed. This here is an important principle, that we will not well commend the Word of God to people unless we are living the Word of God before people. Parents, you will not well commend the Bible to your children if you are, in your own behavior, denying the Bible. In fact, you'll do the very opposite of what you're saying you're doing if you are preaching one thing and doing another. We must be living it. We must be obeying it. We must be letting it seep into our hearts and minds so that it shapes us, and so we are not just hearers of the Word, but doers of it. We're in a dangerous position if we think that we are all doing the right thing just because we're stuffing our head full of Bible knowledge, but our lives aren't continuously being transformed by that Bible knowledge. We must be hearers of the Word as well as doers. We must live the Word. And fourth, we must let the Word live in us. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I, I love this passage because Paul is writing to a local church, like we are a church, and he's saying, let the word about Christ be given a royal dwelling among you. It, it, sometimes this verse has been interpreted to be in a very individualistic way. In other words, we need to get let the word of God into my heart. I, I think that is true, and yet I think what is meant here is that among us, that is, in the way we speak to one another and the priority we give uh, uh, in our gatherings, we should let the word about Jesus as contained in the Bible to have a royal dwelling. This should be what we honor. This should be what we talk about. This should be how we encourage one another. At, at Trinity Baptist Church, as at any church that seeks to be faithful to, to the Bible, there is constant communication about God's word going on. 
all the way from a formal level, like this is, this is probably the most formal uh, communication of God's word that happens in a given week. People gather, someone explains the word of God, and yet the communication of God's word should be happening from a formal level to an informal level. Men's and women's Bible studies, other life groups, Sunday classes, all the way down to uh, sitting with your friend at a, at a coffee shop or in a living room somewhere, what are you doing? You are letting the word of Christ have a rich dwelling among you. You're exhorting one another. You're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What are you doing? You are taking the word about Jesus and you're speaking it. You're preaching it, as it were. We must preach the word. We must learn the word. We must live the word. And we must let the word live in us. The Word of God, the Bible, is our life and authority. This must continue to be the case at Trinity Baptist Church. It is a dynamic of life. Without it, we're nothing. And it must continue to be. I said earlier that I asked you if you discovered that there was this guaranteed program that would transform you, your body, You'd be eager to get into it. You have a transformative program here. The Bible is what changes you. The Bible is what is what convicts you. The Bible is what gives you the good news about Jesus. We need this. Let us live in it. Let us make certain that here at Trinity Baptist Church, the Bible continues to be our life and our authority.